Thanks, guys, for reading. Hey, church, I'm Joel. Nice to be with you and to open God's Word today. I think I know what you're thinking. You know, reading this passage is quite a spicy passage, but <laughs> this is the Word of God. It is good. And let us sit under the Word to hear what He has to say to us. Heavenly Father, we come to your Word tonight here in Titus, in Titus chapter 2. Lord, I, I pray that you give us uh, really eyes to see and hearts to understand what you have to say here to us. And may we sit under your Word humbly and reverently because you are a God for our good. In your name we pray. Amen. So when it comes to living the good life, I don't think anybody has put self-control anywhere on their list. You know, like, yeah, only one piece of fried chicken, said no one ever. <laughs> you know, but I think too much of a good thing is not a good thing. But self-control in general, we know it's necessary for our health. Not just for the super athletes, you know, they're so good at having their discipline and getting their diet right, their sleep right, their schedules right, but even us normal people, we need balance. We need some self-control in terms of what we eat, um, our work and sleep patterns. And we see this in, at the start of every single year, we, we find areas in our life that's kind of gone out of control and um, we make plans to rein it back in. You know, I'm going to start working out. I'm going to get my diet right this year. I'm going to read more books this year. And when we come to Titus chapter 2, I think the question that's asking here, what, what makes a healthy Christian? What makes a healthy church? So that we can live this good, wholesome life. That's a big question that we're going to explore today, and we're going to cover it under two points. First is the basics of the Christian life, and finally the beauty of the Christian life. But first, let's look at the basics. When I say basic, I don't mean like your year one math, one plus one equals two. Once you get that, you don't need to worry about that and forget about it for the rest of your life. I mean, no, the fundamentals, the, the essentials of the Christian life that we need to know every day. Here's the fundamentals. Sound doctrine leads to sound life. Sorry, sound teaching, sound life. Whereas this is where the gospel teaching translates into gospel living. Or to put it into Titus's words, if, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, it's that truth, that gospel truth that leads to godliness. Gospel teaching should lead to our lives being transformed, bearing fruit in godliness. You see, the teaching and living is two sides of the same coin. You can't separate them together. And I think Paul here, when he writes this letter, he refuses to separate that. When he talks about teaching, he also talks about doing. And when he talks about doing, he also talks about teaching. Reading verse 1 says, You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. And what is appropriate to sound doctrine is it leads to sound lives. What we see described in our passage is how this looks like in real life for different people in different um, ages and stages. Another word for sound, we could say, is healthy or wholesome. And if you glance just quickly through that list, you'll notice that there's a common theme across all of them. It's self-control. I think all the other instructions kind of derive from that. And we know that it's the same for all of them because verse 3 and verse 6, it says, likewise and similarly. Kind of links the older, older men and women and the younger men and women and the slaves kind of command to be, show self-control. But it might look different for each group. 
And I was looking into the root meaning of self-control because I didn't really understand the link between doctrine and self-control. But when I looked into it, self-control basically means that you have a sound mind. And that makes sense to me, that if you have a sound mind, then your whole life is sound because your mind is the control center of your life. That's where your emotions are. That's how you live out in your life. To have self-control means you, you have control of your mind and your actions. You're not controlled by your passions. You're not led by any addictions that kind of lead you out of control. And it made sense to me. Sound doctrine, sound mind, sound lives. Now with that in mind, let's look at some examples for each group. We won't go through all of them, we'll just pick through a couple. So older men, verse 2, temperate, meaning sound mind, uh, worthy of respect, means you live your life in a way that when the younger people look at you, they want to emulate you, they want to respect you. Younger men, I like how for the younger men, it seems it only has one instruction, self-control. And I think it's because we get off lightly. I think it's because we actually need self-control in every single area of our life. It's almost like saying, you know, go and get fit or go and get a six-pack. I don't know. You need to do basically everything in life need to be transformed. You know, things like you don't, don't eat all the food on the table or don't spend your first paycheck on a car that you can't afford. Verse 9, let's jump to the slaves. Basically saying, Verse 9, don't backchat the boss, be, be honest at work. One thing that I want us to note about slavery here is that it's very different to what we know of the atrocities of the African slave trade. If you go into Crete, most, household, most households, they had a slave. And those slaves were Christian, and their masters were also Christian too. And Paul, in Galatians 5, he, he tells the Galatians that you are one in Christ, whether you're a male or female. Slave or free, you're one in Christ. I think what Paul's trying to say here that, okay, you are equal in Christ now, doesn't mean that you can backchat the boss or you can steal some of his money because he makes more than you. Self-control. And I don't think it's a far stretch to kind of make uh, this parallel of this slave-master relationship to any relationships we have at work when we work for our managers or bosses. You know, when we're in the workplace... Show integrity. Work in a way that pleases your, your manager to show that, that you can be trusted. That requires discipline. Self-control. Older women, verse 3. It says, be reverent in the way you live. That word reverent, I think that's priestly language. That's used for the priests. When they come before the temple, they're serving God in reverence. They're living their life. They have the privilege of living before God and living in the temple. I think what Titus is trying to teach the older women here, your life is lived before God in the presence of God, and that's a privilege. Not slanderers. I mean, you have control of your speech. Instead of using it for bad, you use it to teach what is good. Let's go to younger women. Younger women, verse 4, 5. Let's, I'll read it for us. To be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. You know, when I first read this verse during this week, it tripped me up. It's a difficult passage to read and digest, especially in our culture today. You know, particularly busy at home and 
subject to husbands. What does that mean? What does busy at home mean? I think it means that you don't neglect your life responsibilities. You know, if you're married, you've made a vow to your husband, be the best wife you can be. Or if you're a mother and have the privilege of having children, be the best loving mother you can be. I think it's also worth taking a little tour into Crete to shed more light into this command. You know, the city of Crete, it was known in the ancient world to be loose in its values and wild living. You know, they just, whatever they wanted, they went and indulged themselves in it. And when you're part of that culture, it's so tempting to take part of it and go out and party while the family unit suffers at home. Secondly, homes back then aren't what they are today. Homes in the first century were more public. You know, when you go home today, it's predominantly a private space where you kind of retreat from the world. Nobody really sees you at home. But in Crete, where you lived is where you worked. It's very more public. Your, your, your home life is much more public. So when it says busy at home, I think it could mean both raising children and being dedicated to the family, but also working in the family business. So I don't think this means that Young women is only um, working at home. But I do want to say that raising a family is honourable. It's a beautiful thing. And it's disappointing to see that the world has kind of devalued the family unit and kind of idolised career. You know, being being a mother or a wife is is honourable. God values that. And I think we've got to remind ourselves that we're not raising just your child. We're raising a child of God. Know who 20 and 30 years' times, they're going to be the leaders of the church and elders of the church. And I think this instruction here, although it's a bit hard to digest, I think the beautiful thing here is it's not Titus teaching this to young women, it's the older women teaching the younger women. I mean, who better to, to go to for advice if you're a young mother or a wife than an older mother or a wife who's been there before you, who has so much blessing and life lessons to offer you? I think that's what it's trying to say here. Now, what about um, subject to husbands? I think what this command is trying to say is trying to describe what a healthy relationship looks like. And what I mean by that is because God, when he created relationships, he meant for all relationships to have order. Not an order of rank, as in one is better than the other. No, but an order of a well-designed and healthy Relationships, order has nothing to do with value. How do we know this? I reckon we should look into the being of God Himself, the Trinity. We know that's a Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We know that they're all equally God. There's not the Son is not lesser than the Father, the Spirit lesser than the than the, um, the Father. They are all equally God, but in terms of how they relate to each other. There is an order in terms of how they express that relationship. You know, the father is always seen as lovingly serving the son. And the son, loving, submitting to the father. And the spirit, submitting to the father and the son. That's beautiful. Order is beautiful in a relationship. And what I find interesting in the book of Titus, you know, generally in the Bible, when it mentions Jesus, Jesus is usually the savior. Jesus, the savior. And it's God, the father, or God, something else. But in Titus, it's one of the rare books where it mentions both God and Jesus as Savior. 
If you look into Titus, in every single chapter, there's three chapters, it's mentioned twice. I'll just bring up the, the introduction. Uh, verse 3. The end of verse 3. God, our Saviour. Um, at the end of verse 4 in chapter 1, Christ Jesus, our Saviour. Um, chapter 3, God our Saviour appeared, verse 4, and Jesus our Saviour, verse 6. You see, I think Paul, this is not an accident. I think Paul is putting here that God and Jesus are the same equal value. Yeah, It doesn't say that Jesus is lesser than, than God or God is greater than the Son. They're both equally um, responsible for salvation. And so when it comes to a relationship with the husband and wife, it's not devaluing the one. They're both equally valid before God. And this instruction is a purpose for healthy relationships between husband and wife. In chapter 1, the the, the elders, they were already instructed by, by Paul or by Titus to be faithful to his wife, to love his kids. And I think in response to the husband's sacrificial love for his wife. He's instructed to love his wife like Christ loved the bride. The wife responds with loving submission to that love. Yeah? I don't know, this might look as simple as talking things out with each other, making decisions together, walking life together. This is healthy, this is basics of healthy relationships. This is the basic of Christian life. Sound teaching, sound lives. The gospel leads to godly living. And this might look different for everyone. Now that we know the basics, I think one thing that we need to do is that we need to stick to the basics. Because if we don't stick to the basics, we we won't be healthy Christians. We won't be sound Christians. And to use the words of uh, verse 15 in chapter 1, where it mentions that pure and corrupt analogy, if we don't stick to the basics, we're corrupt. Not corrupt in the sense of like a a bent police officer or a drug dealer, but corrupt in the sense that something is missing. You know when when you're downloading a file on the internet and you try to open it before it completes? You'll get an error, you know? File corrupted, cannot open. Because there's parts of it missing. For you need the whole thing complete for it to work. And I think we're corrupt in that sense. If sound teaching doesn't lead to sound life, or gospel doesn't translate to godliness, there's something missing somewhere. It could be the teaching. It could be the doctrine. Maybe you're not understanding the gospel somewhere. Maybe you're missing Jesus. Or it could be your life. Maybe there's an area in your life where you're struggling to give to God or where it's, you're finding it hard to find godliness because you're not, trying to, you're not fully trusting Jesus in that. I'm going to stick to the basics. You know, America is known to produce the best uh, American, uh, sorry, basketball players in the world. But right now they're going through a dilemma a massive dilemma where the next generation of players, they're lacking fundamentals and skills because they want to be flashy. They all want to be Steph Curry shooting threes from the halfway line or trying to be LeBron James, dunk the ball. They're all playing this individualistic style of basketball. And the sad thing is, it's that the coaches and the parents, they're all enabling this thing to happen. 
you know, the, the, the coaches in the schools, they all want to find that one kid from their school that will make $100 million in the NBA. And, that, and because of that, they might get a lot of money and be rich. And because of that, that means they invest all their money into this one really talented kid and the other kids, they're just neglected. And the result is a generation of basketball players who don't know the basics. Let's, and if, let's compare them to the European players or international players. Now they practice fundamentals. Unlike America, you won't make it far. You'll make another team if you don't know how to dribble properly, if you don't know how to pass the ball, if you don't play team basketball. You will not make it. And if you look at all the top players now in, in the NBA, it's a, it's a guy from Cameroon, Joel Embiid, a guy from Greece, Giannis Antetokounmpo, a guy from Serbia, a guy from Slovenia, Luka Doncic. You see, for, for USA basketball to be healthy again, they need to come back to the basics. And for the Christian, for you and me, for the church to be healthy, we need to get the fundamentals right and stick with it. Gospel teaching leads to gospel living. So that's the basics. Now let's look at the beauty of the Christian life. Now here's the thing. We know self-control is good, but it ain't beautiful. We'd rather not have self-control We'd rather just indulge ourselves in our favorite food or what TV show or whatever, favorite pleasure. And I think that's how Crete was back in Titus's day. Verse 12 kind of describes what Cretans were, were known for. They were liars. They couldn't control their tongue. They were evil brutes, like evil animals. They were wild, living wild lives. Um, it says they were lazy gluttons. Whatever they wanted, they got it. But I think if we zoom out of that little city of Crete and into the whole first century world, would you believe that this world, first century world, was also valued self-control? Very highly valued. I think that was one end of the spectrum, Crete. But the other end of the spectrum were like these philosophers who dedicated their lives to thinking of what good life is, like Aristotle and Plato. I think the world knows something about having self-control. There's something good about that. And on the screen, it will come up a list of what these philosophers said, of what they think the good life is. They spent their whole lives thinking about what this looks like. It says prudence, justice, temperance, fortitude. Your prudence means you're wise, your, your mind is sound. Justice means you're fair with people and how you, you treat them. Temperance, self-control. Fortitude, you're patient, you endure others. You see, this list is not too far from what we have here in Titus 2. That is all to say that there is something beautiful about self-control, and I think the world knows it, even though they might not have the full picture. In the passage, I think there are three so-that statements that kind of support this. They all involve a watching world. Verse 5 um, so that no one will malign the word of God. Verse 8. So that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say. Finally, verse 10, and the most beautiful one. So that in every way they will make the teaching about God, our Savior, attractive. 
You see, when the world sees a church that is healthy, living godly lives, verse 5, it makes the word of God look good. No one can slander scripture. It makes Christians look good, verse 8. The world might think you're weird following Jesus, but they can't say nothing bad about you. Lastly, verse 10. It makes God our Savior look good. In other translations, it translates, it adorns the gospel. That word adorn is that idea of embellishing or cosmetics, putting makeup on to make yourself more beautiful. And I think what, what the world sees here in the church is, is not like putting lipstick on a pig, you know, trying to make something that's not beautiful look beautiful. No, what the world sees in a church is what already is truly beautiful, God in his self-control and showing it off to the world. Godliness is beautiful. But I think what nurtures that, what we need, is that it only becomes beautiful when it's nurtured in a church family. This is what the world sees, a church family loving each other. We can't grow in godliness alone. We need each other to do it. Now, I didn't grow up in Sydney evangelical circles, but in a small family church in Campbelltown, in southwest Sydney, I loved it. It was a small Samoan church. It was like five or six families. My parents were faithful, teaching me the gospel. I loved them for that. But I got to a point in my Christian walk when I was a teenager where I felt like I hit a wall. There was something missing. To be honest, I found it really hard to find joy in the Christian life. Like I knew that Jesus was real, but I just didn't find joy walking in that. And I think a lot of it has to come because I felt like I had no Christian friends around me. Um, as I grew older, slowly and slowly, all my friends in youth groups started to fall away from the faith, and that is extremely discouraging. And I got to uni, I had no more friends left at church, and all that time I struggled so much in my faith. And I think how I coped with that is I just studied really hard. Um, but when I finished uni, I wanted to do something about it. I found a job, a grad job, and I found out about this organization, City Bible Forum. They minister to young grads who want to be Christian in the workplace, especially those that just come out of uni. They were holding this event, and um, it was called Welcome to the Jungle. And, and one of the, uh, the panelists, um, he really just struck me as a really godly, humble guy. You know, these were big guns. There was like a partner of a law firm, a, I don't know, a senior in KPMG and things like that. But I looked... After the, that event, I walked up to him, introduced myself, and exchanged numbers. And six months later, he invited me to his church. I was like, yeah, I'll come. It was located in a random church building in Kiribili under the bridge. But during the service, it was my first service, I just remember being overwhelmed. I still remember where I, I, I was sitting. It was right next to the, the corner. And tears, I couldn't hold my tears, feeling so much joy because I heard the, the, the word preached so faithfully and I walked into a community so loving and I saw Christians my age loving Jesus. I felt like I was the only Christian growing up. That was enough for me. I didn't see much, but that was enough for me to say, this is my church now. And I committed to it. And I think from then my faith went from a place of surviving to thriving. Nothing because of me 
because I, I, I plugged myself into a church family who really loved one another and took me under their wing. I couldn't wait for Sundays when Paul preached. I couldn't wait for Bible studies to hang out with people. I couldn't wait for the socials. Was... You see, this is the beauty of the Christian life. We do life together, nourish one another, help each other with the good and the, and the lows in the church. That's the Christian experience, what they experience in the church. That's also what the world sees. And they can't deny it and say that's beautiful. But I think what we need is that we need each other to grow in godliness. As I was preparing for this sermon, I found this quote that for someone said that really captures this idea. If it takes a village to raise a child, then it takes the church to raise a child of God, marked by self-control, integrity, and truth. This is so true. We can't do this Christian life alone. Otherwise, we'll be malnourished, we'll be unhealthy, we'll be unsound Christians. And our passage describes this kind of healthy church family, relationships, looking out for each other. And then we see the older men and women looking out for the younger, and we see the younger looking up to the older ministering to one another, growing in godliness. That's beautiful. Let's commit to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay, to the, to the older ones. Look, I'm saddened that in today's culture that older people are kind of devalued and, and youth is idolized. You kind of get to a certain age and you're kind of seen as irrelevant the Bible says otherwise. You are never too old to be useful for God's kingdom. You're valued. Your, your experience is an absolute blessing to the church. And we see that because the older ones, they're the first ones to be addressed. For a healthy church, we need experience. We need the, the older people living amongst us. And your responsibility is to look out for the younger ones. And to the young bloods or the younger ones here. The encouragement here is to not be naive or ignorant. For those older than us, either age or spiritually, they have something that you don't or we don't experience in wisdom. You know, we should respect and submit to them and value them. I was watching this documentary about um, Mexican culture in Los Angeles. Um, one thing that really struck to me was how they respect older people and their elders. Um, they have this esteemed title for an older person. It's called a veterano. But you don't get that title just by growing old. You need to show by your life that you're, that you're worthy of respect. You know, you've, you've lived your life serving the community um, for your service and hospitality. And I love that because this is a culture ready to embrace and value older people for their wisdom and experience. I think that's beautiful. But I think it's also right. And when all this is happening in a church, it's a beautiful thing. It makes the teaching about God our Savior attractive. You know, when the world sees, they can't help but say, damn, that's beautiful. I want to close with two questions to bring it all together for us. How do I know what's the difference? Okay, so how do you know that if I'm an older person or a younger person? 
I think you're both. You're an older person to someone else. You're a veterano to someone. What you've been through in life is valuable to someone younger than you. If you're a teenager, you can help out the primary school kids, a uni student, the teenagers, and so on and so forth. Will you look out for the younger ones? Will you look out for them? Teach them through your words. Teach them through your actions. You're also a younger person to someone else. Do you value those older than you and recognize that they have so much value and blessing to offer you? Lastly, what's the difference? What's the difference between the beautiful life that the philosophers said 2,000 years ago and what the Bible says? The difference is the gospel, Jesus Jesus makes all the difference. You know, you'll find pockets of non-Christian people who seem to get their life together and they have discipline and self-control, but it won't last long. It comes from a different motivation. You know, when Plato and Aristotle and all those philosophers wrote those, those virtues that you saw, that was valued a long time ago. But now the world doesn't value them anymore. The church is the only place where you find them all in one building, one place, in its fullness for the rest of time. Church is unique in the sense that in here you'll, you'll find probably the laziest person you ever know and he gets a job. You find the most greedy and the most selfish person to become the most generous with their time and money. You find the person who is a workaholic or studies all the time and prioritizing rest and family. You find the, the angry person becoming the most forgiving and patient person. But even harder still, and I think a lot of us are in this category, is that really good people realize that you'll never be good enough for God. It's only Jesus, not self-imposed rules or restrictions that get you to say, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to live for you, Jesus. And when we, the church, start to exercise discipline and self-control and let the fruit of the Spirit bear fruit in our lives. It will shine like, like stars in a dark world that really needs the gospel. And like moths, they'll probably hover around the light around you and ask you, damn, your life is beautiful. Can you tell me more about your God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us a picture here of what the good life looks like and how that looks like in a church. Father, help us through your spirit to exercise self-control and bear fruit in the spirit and help us to minister to those in our church family, whether older or younger, in your word. In your name we pray.